Pope Benedict XVI, who some call Pope Emeritus, Benedict XVI died this morning, December 31st, 2022, Roman time. And I got to admit, I'm, I'm conflicted on how to feel. The very first thing that came to mind is, what if Pope Benedict had not resigned? What if his pontificate had continued to go from 2013 when he resigned all the way to 20, the last day of 2022? And how would the Catholic Church look if that had happened? It's a big what if. Obviously, it didn't happen. As you know, I struggle with Pope Francis, his theology, his policies, his appointments, and in many ways, I think Francis has been destructive for the church and caused a lot of confusion. But what if Benedict had been Pope? What if Sumorum Pontificum hadn't been overturned? What if there'd been no Pachamamas and Synods and Synodality and <sighs> Amoris Laetitia? All the things that I've been wrestling with, that you've been wrestling with for coming up on a decade. That's a big what if. Today I want to talk about what happens next. There's a lot of things that I want to say and get off my chest and I think maybe today is not the day to do that so I want to go over just the facts and what is next. I'm going to share today how I became a Catholic. The moment of it clicking in my mind and in my heart happened when I was at Mass with Pope Benedict XVI in 2006, February 2nd, Feast of the Presentation. I'm going to explain how that happened, but I also am going to cover today some questions. For example, how is the Vatican going to declare the death of Pope Benedict XVI? And then the most important thing I think to cover today is today's Saint's Day. Pope Sylvester. Pope Sylvester was the Pope during the transition of the Church of Martyrdom into the Church of Constantine. Pope Sylvester was the Pope who oversaw that transition where the Roman Empire was absorbed or united with the Roman Catholic Church. And that relates to the Catacomb, which I've covered extensively in my new book, Antichrist and Apocalypse. And then the third thing, actually, is this the fourth thing? Third or fourth thing that I want to cover is how I believe Pope Francis, the Vatican, the globalists, the media are going to make Benedict XVI into a scapegoat for all that's wrong in the Catholic Church. And there's a lot going on wrong right now. And then at the end, I'll just, I have a bunch of questions that I don't necessarily have answers for that relate to Francis, to that relate to the College of Cardinals, that relates to why Pope Benedict resigned. So let's go ahead and get started. I'll begin, uh, first off, welcome everybody to my podcast. Some of you are probably maybe new or here for the first time. And, uh, Welcome. Uh, please like it and subscribe. Okay, so in 2006, I was an Episcopalian priest. I was Father Taylor Marshall. I, I wore a collar, and um, I was struggling with my vocation as an Anglican cleric, as an Episcopalian priest. And my wife and I had been married for five years, and she was pregnant with our fourth baby, who's named Jude. And we were going to go on a fifth anniversary trip to Europe or to somewhere. And we both had been studying Catholicism. I was an Anglican or an Episcopalian. I prayed the rosary. I had devotion to Mary. I was a high church Anglican or an Anglo-Catholic. So I already had theology that was close to Roman Catholicism, but I wasn't there yet. My wife Joy was watching Mother Angelica, EWTN, while she took care of the kids at home. And 
I was, I've talked about this before, I was struggling with my vocation because I realized that the Episcopal Church in the United States of America was increasingly liberal. They were starting to um, consecrate as bishops, invalidly, um, openly homosexual men. Things were really getting liberalized during this time. I was also very pro-life and a pro-life leader in the Episcopal Church and in my local community, and I realized the Episcopal Church was not it when it came to the pro-life movement. So we decided we would go to Rome for our fifth anniversary. And when we were there, we went to the Scavi tour. We went underneath St. Peter's and saw the bones of St. Peter's. And I was, how do I say this? I want to say mystically, but then my critics are going to say something. I'll just say it. In a mystical way, I had this connection with, with, uh, St. Peter, seeing his bones. And I remember after the tour was kind of over, everybody left and I kind of went back and stayed there and I got on my knees and I prayed. I can't exactly remember what I prayed, but I prayed there below St. Peter's Basilica before the bones of St. Peter. And after we finished that tour, there was a young priest who had been our tour guide. And he said, you guys are asking a lot of questions, you know, and, and who are you and all that? And I said, I'm Episcopal priest, and this is my wife. And he said, oh, I'm doing a dissertation on something ecumenical. You should go to, to Mass with the Pope. Do you want to do that? We said, yes. So we left the Scavi tour, and we followed this young priest um, up into St. Peter's, past the Swiss guards. And he said, wait here. It was kind of by a big stairwell. I don't know where we were. And he went upstairs and he came back about five minutes later and he gave us two tickets to mass with Pope Benedict. And so this was February 2nd, 2006. And that evening, it was an evening mass. As it was getting dark, it was St. Peter's was dark. And they he, uh, Benedict came in holding a candle it's, I think it might be the image that I used on the opening of this video. But while we were waiting to get in, it was all basically nuns who had been invited to this mass. And so I was there wearing, I think I was wearing a cassock. I think I was wearing, I was either wearing black clerics, but I think I was wearing a black cassock. Can't remember. But anyway, I was wearing clerics. I was with my wife, who is an attractive woman who was pregnant at the time, pregnant with our fourth child. And I could just see the looks of all these nuns looking at a guy like me with a Roman collar on with a woman who was pregnant. Looking back, it was kind of kind of suspicious. We went to that mass and we got to be very close to the high altar in St. Peter's. And I remember seeing Pope Benedict celebrating mass. If I remember correctly, um, a lot of it was in Italian. Some of it was in Latin. And I was standing, if you've ever been to St. Peter's, you know the, the bronze statue of St. Peter where people rub the foot? So if you're facing the altar and you come in, it's on your right side. I was standing right next to that bronze, that life-size or bigger bronze statue of St. Peter at Mass, February 2nd, Feast of the Presentation, and Pope Benedict was right there. And I remember during the consecration and then time for communion, this nun kept on trying to bring me or push me up to receive communion. But I knew I couldn't receive communion because I wasn't a Catholic. I wasn't a Roman Catholic. And I was looking right there at Pope Benedict. And boy, did I want to receive communion, but I knew it would be a sin. And then when it came time for me not to commune, but I did not commune, in that moment, I kid you not, I've told this before, in that moment, I believe the Holy Ghost came down upon me, and I knew that I was a heretic and a schismatic because I was not in union with the Pope. And I know, knew that the very morning I'd been just below that altar in St. Peter's, praying at the bones of Peter, and here was Pope Benedict on top of that altar celebrating the Holy Sacrifice in the Mass. And it was in that moment that I knew, I knew 100% if I did not enter or seek to enter the one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church, 
I would be damned in hell. You may think that's really harsh, Taylor. Why would you say that? It's not very ecumenical. Listen, I knew in that moment that Rome was the apostolic see and that the Pope is the Pope. And you have to be in communion with St. Peter, who was buried right down there. It was in that moment that I had complete certainty. Oh, I should add one other thing. Before Mass began, um, where we were stationed over there by that statue, there was a big, um, I don't know, big piece of fabric, a big, uh, I, don't, I don't know what the word is. And it was, it was like a sacristy in there. It was not an actual sacristy. It's like they created one, like a tent area inside St. Peter's. And at a certain point, I looked in there and I saw Benedict. So that was pretty cool. Also on that trip in Rome, um, I had left my camera at the metal detector and I went back to get my camera and on the way back at St. Anne's Gate in St. Peter's, a car stopped, the door opened and I, from here to 10 feet away, Pope Benedict got out of the car and I yelled out, Viva la Papa, or something like that. Viva Papa. And then everyone around turned and started screaming and taking photos. So I was really close. So twice I got to be pretty close to Benedict. And it was on that trip in Rome that I became, in my heart, a Roman Catholic. And I came home, and I eventually entered the church in May of 2006. So this happened on February 2nd, and then I came in in May, uh, so a few months later, and became a Catholic layman. I... It was offered to me to be a married Catholic priest, and I didn't choose that vocation. So that's my personal connection with Pope Benedict. As you know, later on, I, I came to love the traditional Latin Mass and Sumorum Pontificum, which granted all priests in the world to celebrate the traditional Latin Mass, was, was given to us in the motu proprio by Pope Francis. So I love that. So it's, it's, it is a hard day for me to think about my, my conversion and being with him. You know, did he cause me to convert? No. Did his presence that day on February 2nd, 2006, on the high altar in St. Peter's, above the bones of Peter, which I had just seen that day, I do believe there was a mystical thing that happened there with the Holy Spirit. And my heart was captured. It wasn't irresistible grace. I knew that if I didn't conform to the grace because I was outside the church as an Anglican priest, that I would be damned. I had to enter the church. So as you can see, I think that background story, maybe you think, how did, why did, what makes that Taylor Marshall guy tick? Well, I think if you look at my origin story on becoming a Catholic, I do have this affinity, this filial piety, to Benedict because that was the moment in which I desired to become a Catholic at all costs, that it was a matter of eternal life or eternal damnation. So to see Pope Benedict in 2013 resign the papacy, step down, and let Bergoglio come up on the chair with everything that's happened since then, it hurts. You know, back in 1819, when we were talking about these things, I said, you know, it's kind of like you love your dad and then your dad leaves, moves out, and then this stepdad comes in. That's what it feels like to me. I'm not saying it's right. You might think I'm a complete idiot and disagree with me. I'm just saying that's, that's what it, it feels like. So that's my background with Benedict and, and him dying. You know, when, when John Paul II died, I wept. I wasn't even Catholic. Benedict died today, and I haven't wept yet. I feel kind of bad about that, like I should. I just don't know how to categorize it. Do you? What do you guys think? Let me turn on the live chat here. Here we go. I got the live chat going. I wonder what y'all are saying in here. Catholic Crusader says, uh, wonderful testimony, Dr. T. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, I didn't plan it that way. It's just, it's just how it happened. And, um, 
you know, since then, and since I've written my book, Infiltration, you know, I realized that Pope Benedict XVI um, was very much part of the modernist transition in the 50s and 60s with Karl Rahner and, you know, all those guys. And, you know, you see those pictures of Ratzinger and he's not wearing clerics, he's wearing a tie and a black suit. And I know you're going to say, well, that's what they did back then. Yeah, I know. That's what they did back then. But, you know, priests wearing neckties and black suits and all that was definitely signaling a transition. And then, of course, you know, Vatican II and the Novus Ordo and the rewriting of the seven sacraments and then the whole debacle with Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre the 1986 Assisi meeting, the 1988 consecrations, and everything going on with John Paul II. And then, you know, fortunately, Benedict did crack down on Marcel Maciel and the Legionaries of Christ and that whole thing. So, I mean, I'm just, I'm conflicted, and my heart is heavy. And I think it's going to take me a little while to process it. Yeah. Do you guys agree with me or are you, are you sad? I think the, probably the best word is I'm just confused. I'm just confused. And I'm just being totally raw and honest with you. All right. So let's talk about some of these topics and questions. So how will they declare the death of Pope Benedict? Is it going to be the proclamation of the death of a pope? You know, this whole idea of Papa Emeritus is not historical. It's, it's totally made up. There's no funeral rite for a Papa Emeritus. So is he going to be buried as a pope? Funeral for a pope? Is he going to get the funeral for a cardinal? Are they going to create a new liturgical funeral for a Papa Emeritus? I mean, where do we go from here? Um, I think I heard that they haven't rung the bells for the death of a pope because they're not considering it to be the death of a pope. This whole thing is so confusing. And the Holy Spirit is the author of peace. The Holy Spirit is not the author of confusion. So the confu wherever there is confusion, that's not where the Logos is. Logos is the second person in Trinity, God the Son, Jesus Christ. Logos provides reason, order, logistics, um, logic, you know, patterns. That is who God is. He brings about Logos, order. Satan is the one who brings about death, destruction, confusion, lies, suffering, division. So we... I, I just sense that with this whole thing, there is no, they don't know how to ring the bells. They don't know how to declare it. They, they don't know how they're going to bury them, what funeral rites. I mean, we haven't even known what to call the man. Is He He seems to go by Pope Ben Sixteenth. I don't see Pope Emeritus in the media. They write that sometimes, but he doesn't seem to use that. Or is he Cardinal Ratzinger or Father Ratzinger? I don't know. The whole thing is very confusing. Now, I think the most interesting and provocative topic that I could cover today is today's Saints Day. Today is the feast day of Saint Sylvester. Saint Sylvester has a lot of myths and legends about him, including slaying a dragon. But Pope Sylvester was the Pope during the time of the conversion of Constantine, Pope Sylvester was the Pope during the Council of Nicaea that gave us the first version of the Nicene Creed in 325 that declared dogmatically the divinity of Jesus Christ. Pope Sylv Sylvester was a saint, and he, his saint's day is December 31st. That's today. And one of my favorite books is Helena by Evelyn Waugh. Have you read the book, the novel? Helena by Evelyn Waugh. In fact, my 
my historical fiction trilogy, Sword and Serpent, which was followed by 10th Region of the Night and then Storm of Fire and Blood, a major influence or inspiration for me for writing those novels is Evelyn Waugh's book, Helena. And in Evelyn Waugh's book, Helena, they're talking about the Pope, who's Pope Sylvester at this time. And I have the, I don't have the quote because I'm, I'm not at home right now, but otherwise I'd get the book. But there's some quote in the novel where they kind of talk about Pope Sylvester as being so-so. He's kind of a mid-Pope. And it's something like, yeah, I mean, he's, he's pretty good, but if we ever did canonize him, they'd have to give him the last day of the year, December 31st. That's a quote in the book. Fictional quote, not historical quote. Why is Pope Sylvester so significant? Well, I'm going to tell you. Pope Sylvester was the Pope from January 314 until December 31st, today, in the year of our Lord, 335. So he was the Pope of Constantine. The transformation of the Roman Empire from being pagan, degenerate, and killing the bishops, the priests, the deacons, the nuns, the martyrs of the early church, during the, pon the pontificate and the reign of Sylvester, it went from godless and degenerate and started becoming a Christian empire. Armenia as a nation had converted to Christ before the Roman Empire, but shortly after, Constantine begins to conform. We can argue all day whether Constantine did it correctly, whether he was a good guy or bad guy, but the facts remain. You start having state recognition of the churches in Rome, of the Pope, of the bishops. The emperor gets involved in the first ecumenical council. Pope Sylvester sends two priest delegates to the council to represent him. This is all super important historical stuff. And Pope Sylvester was the one who oversaw it. What does that have to do with Pope Benedict? I think it has a lot to do with Pope Benedict. I think, as you know, I've been wrestling with this doctrine of St. Paul, the catechon. If you read my new book, Antichrist and Apocalypse, you'll know that Paul uses the word catechon in, in two different ways. There's catechon with a long O at the end and catechon with a small O, an omicron. One means a withholder in Greek, as in a man, a person. And the other one is neuter, meaning a withholder as in a neuter institution. And the church fathers say that the catechon, the masculine, is a man a withholding man, and the catechon, which they identify with the Roman emperor or later with the Roman pope, and the catechon has to do with the Roman empire or its relationship with the Roman Catholic Church. There's been a lot of debates on whether Pope Benedict validly resigned. I'm not going to go into that today, but I will go into it in future podcasts, so subscribe, hit the button, hit the bell. But the beginning of this merge. See, all the church fathers, all of them, all of them, and I document it in Antichrist and Apocalypse, say that the withholder, the withholding thing that keeps the Antichrist away from us, right, that says the Antichrist is held back, he is withheld, the catacomb in Greek, that which withholds the Antichrist will eventually be taken out of the way at the end of time. All the church fathers say that the catacomb is the Roman Empire. And then you get into Thomas Aquinas and Cardinal Manning, and they all say, yes, it's the Roman Empire in union with the Roman Catholic Church. That unity, that reality in history, which has been since the time of St. Sylvester all the way up until recently, that is what restrains or withholds the coming of the Antichrist. Are you getting nervous yet? So this idea of Antichrist and then the mystery of the catechon, the withholder that withholds the Antichrist, it's in St. Paul, 2 Corinthians, I mean, sorry, 2 Thessalonians. And then 
Benedict, I mean, this may just be a coincidence. It may have to do with nothing, but Benedict dies on the feast of, you could say, the founder, the papal founder of the unity between the Roman Empire and the person of Constantine and the Roman Church and the person of St. Sylvester. You see, that whole integration of church and state that happened in the early 300s that brought an end to the Roman martyrdoms. There were 10 martyrdoms. See my book, Eternal City, where I go through the whole theology of the Roman church and the Roman empire and the persecutions and everything that happened. That integration between church and state for the first time in the early 300s happened with the integration and the friendship and the alliance of Constantine the Great and Pope St. Sylvester. That integration created what we call Christendom. Christendom is the unity of the church and the state. Was it always friendly? No. Did it always work? No. Is it the right way to go? Yes. And so we're looking at a time when the whole world seems to be going to pot. We got transvestites everywhere stealing people's luggage. We got parades named after pride, the chief of all the sins, promoting perversions in the streets and the libraries and the elementary schools and even in churches. We got priests who have boyfriends and use the grinder app to hook up and commit sodomy. We got idols, Pachamamas in the Vatican. Traditional Latin Mass is a no-no. But, you know, if you want to have a pride Mass, that's cool, according to them. World War I brought about the disintegration of monarchy, in the integration of church and state. We saw the demise of the Austrian Empire and the Habsburgs, and then the stalwart, holy, blessed Karl of Austria, true saint, true saint, go down as a, in a way, wounded monarch who gave himself, spent himself, in the book, Antichrist and Apocalypse, I talk about maybe Blessed Carl being the last Imperial Habsburg. Maybe that has something to do with the withholder. The catacon moved out of the way for the coming of the Antichrist. Again, I don't say who the Antichrist is. I'm just looking at what the church fathers say. What does Thomas Aquinas say? What have great saints said about this? Definitely, I think we can say that in the 1900s, the integration of Christendom, of church and state, Western tradition in Christ was destroyed. World War I was not just World War I or the Great War. It was the war against the Christian monarchies. It was the destruction of Christian monarchies. And then since that has happened, we have seen infiltration in the Catholic Church at all levels, in all countries, all over the world. We've seen the decline in priests, the decline in religious, the decline in infant baptisms, the decline in Christian marriages, the decline in everything. The only thing we've seen an incline on is annulments and divorce. So when I saw that Benedict died on the feast of St. Sylvester, and I know Sylvester is the Constantine Pope, mm, what does that mean? Why did Pope Benedict die on the feast day of the Constantine Pope? And what does it mean? I'm going to check in with y'all on the live chat right here. I see it's fired up. My goodness sakes, it's fired up. I'm going to pause right now. And I think we need to pray for the soul of Benedict XVI. I haven't done that yet. So um, we'll pray. Uh, let's pray a Hail Mary 
for Pope Benedict. We'll pray two Hail Marys. We'll do a Latin Hail Mary, and we'll do an English Hail Mary. Then we'll, I'll continue to talk about. The next thing I want to talk about is how they're going to scapegoat Pope Benedict XVI. Oremus nomini patris et fidi et spiritus sancti. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. For the repose of the soul of Pope Benedict XVI. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum. Benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, or pernobis peccatoribus, nunc et or mortis nostre. Amen. Glory Patri, et Filio, Spiritui Sancto, sicuterat in principio, nunc et semper, et in secula seculorum. Amen. Resquiescat in pace. Nomine Patris, et Filii, Spiritus Sancti. Amen. All right, so um, Christendom has been over for a long time. Not really. Not really. Christendom came to an end, uh, you could say, towards the end of the 1800s, early 1900s. And Christendom, remember, is not just like, I live in a somewhat Christian culture. Christendom is Christian domus, D-O-M-U-S, the Latin word. Domus means a house. Christendom is the house of Christianity. Christendom, the house of Christianity, the home of Christianity. And in order to have a home, you have to have the integration of the church and the state. I'm the dad. I'm the head of my family. But I'm also submitted to the church, to my pastors, my bishop, and the Roman pontiff. See, there has to be the integration for there to be Christendom. So you have to have your political leaders submitted to the reign of Jesus Christ on church. If the political leaders are not publicly and officially submitted to the reign of Jesus Christ, you do not have Christendom. America is not Christendom. So, the death of Pope St. Sylvester. Now, there is a tradition that, a Roman tradition, in fact, if you go to the baptistry at St. John Lateran in Rome, the cathedral of the Pope, and you go into the baptistry, there's a mural there of Pope Sylvester baptizing Constantine. The Eastern tradition is that he was baptized by a semi-Arian right before he died. But the Roman tradition is that he was actually baptized in Rome by St. Sylvester. And a lot of these documents, including some of the Roman forgeries, the donation of Constantine. You ever heard of the donation of Constantine? Well, the donation of Constantine in legend was the donation of Constantine to whom? The recipient was Sylvester, Pope Sylvester. There's a famous uh, fresco by Maso di Banco, and it has Pope Sylvester slaying a dragon. I'm going to see if I can put it on the screen here. I don't have my normal setup here, but let's see if it'll work. Oh, it's going to work. That's great. There we go. Y'all still with me? Where to go? Here's the here's the fresco of Sylvester. Well, it came into my computer and it's not here. Drats. As you can see, I'm not in my normal digs. All right, well, you just have to look it up. It says it came on my computer, but it's not here. But the tradition is, is that he slayed a dragon and also that Constantine himself was very sick and that Sylvester prayed for Constantine and that he was healed and that this was the impetus for Constantine converting to Catholicism. Here is a picture of Constantine giving uh, his crown to, guess who? St. Sylvester. There it is. Oh, wow, this actually did work. All right. I'm on a laptop, so none of this really works that great. I'm sorry to bore you with this, but I think it is important. 
Here we go. St. Sylvester and Constantine. Now, there he is. Maybe you've seen that picture before. There's the famous umbrella that you see in the Sede Vecante um, coat of arms. Uh, Pope Sylvester is on the left. He's on the, the throne of St. Peter. Uh, Constantine is on the right. And this is the merging of church and state in the early 300s. So I'm a huge student of this. I've written a book on called Eternal City, which talks about the merging, the integration of the church and state in the 300s. That book is called Eternal City. You can get it on Amazon. And then I've written three novels about Constantine during this time, Sword and Serpent Trilogy. So I'm very much invested in this. So when I woke up this morning, I knew today was going to be St. Sylvester, the Constantine Pope. And I saw Benedict died. Benedict died on St. Sylvester's feast day. What does this mean? Is it a sign? I think it is a sign. I haven't fully digested it yet, but I think it's a sign. And I'll be talking more about it. Now, the third thing and the last thing I want to talk about is Benedict as scapegoat. Can we be real honest here? Like brutally honest? That the Catholic Church, now the Catholic Church, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, is the bride of Christ. And objectively and metaphysically, she is pure, she is holy. But inside the church, Christ says, in the kingdom, you have wheat and tares, or wheat and cockle. You have the true, nutritious wheat that feeds people growing in the church. And then you have weeds, tares cockle that's growing up in the field that's infiltrating the field it's not what god intends he wants it to be all wheat but there's these weeds in the field can we be brutally honest and say that the weeds in the last 60 years are thick we got so many weeds in the church so much cockle now they don't really belong saint john the apostle my patron saint says they went out from us because they were never really of us. You see, the infiltrators, the Judases, the Satans, they are in our midst, but they don't belong to us. They're not part truly, eschatologically, metaphysically, because they don't have the sanctifying grace. They're here amongst us under the inspiration of Satan, to confuse us, and to damn us. And in the last 60 years, you could say 100 years, you could even say 150 years, that's why I talk about it in my book, Infiltration, it's getting worse and worse and worse. And if we're brutally honest, brutally honest, I know that we want to pretend everything is good and we want to canonize every single pope. Oh, Pope Paul VI was a saint, canonized, Wait about, oh, John the 23rd, he was a saint, canonized. What about John Paul II, canonized? John Paul I was a pope for 33 days, canonize him too. We want to canonize everybody. I think it's a cope. I think it's a coping mechanism because we've been in decline. We have been in infiltration. We have been in devolution and revolution. And we all know it. We all want to pretend Well, World Youth Day was awesome. Yeah, okay. But I mean, look around. Is everyone in your family a practicing Catholic? Is the next generation, are your kids and your grandkids, were they catechized properly? Were they married in the church? Did they baptize their babies? God willing, yes. But for most people that I know and talk to, It has not been the integrated tradition of passing down the faith from one one generation of family to the next generation to the next generation. It has been a splintering, a a, a disintegration. People out there are hurting because their spouses, their parents, their siblings, their cousins, their nephews, their kids, and their grandchildren are leaving the faith. And then those of us who are trying to stay in the faith and go to Mass every single Sunday and pray the rosary every day and catechize our kids, we're struggling to keep it all together. 
and you say something like, well, I want to get my baby baptized right away, or I want to go to the Latin Mass, or I want to choose a saint. I can't believe all the people coming to me in the last week saying, when I was confirmed, they said, I can't take a saint. We don't do that anymore. That's part of confirmation is you taking on a saint's name for your confirmation. I've had all these people coming to me like, yeah, I never even heard of that. Or when I asked, they said, no, we don't do that anymore. You want to do anything traditional in the Catholic Church, they mock you, they make fun of you, they push you out, they call you rigid, they call you schismatic. We are just trying to hang on to our faith and pass it to the next generation. You say, oh, I don't want to get the vaccine. They say, well, Pope Francis said you have to go have it. That's mercy. It's charity. You say, I don't want to have communion in the hand. I want to receive communion on the tongue like my ancestors did. Well, that's rigid and judgmental. I think, man, if Pope Benedict didn't resign in 2013, we would have had nine plus years of a completely different situation. Would it have still not been perfect? Yes. Did Benedict mishandle scandal cases? Sadly, I have to admit, I've studied it. Yes. Because he presented one or two red binders in 2012 that had pictures of cardinals in drag, dressed up like transvestites and drug parties and Vatican bank scandals and all kinds of sexual misconduct in it? Yes. Is that why he resigned? Probably. I think so. Was he betrayed by his butler? Did his butler go to jail? You can go see my video, Why Did Pope Benedict Resign? It's all in there. It's nasty. It's embarrassing. It's gross. So if we're brutally honest, I think one of the reasons I feel conflicted and confused is I love Pope Benedict. I wanted him to stay on as Pope. But the fact that he resigned and he stayed quiet these nine years while everything seemed to melt down, it just hurts. It hurts. And that kind of leads me to the scapegoat theory. If John the 23rd is canonized saint and Paul the 6th is canonized saint, John Paul 1 is canonized saint, John Paul 2 is canonized saint, they're going to want to canonize Pope Francis as saint. You got all these problems in the Catholic Church. There has to be a fall guy. You can't have saint, 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 saint. If everyone's going to be saint, you got to say this guy is the bad guy. And that's what they're going to do with B16. Ben the 16th like the traditional Latin Mass, preserve the traditional Latin Mass. He brought dignity to the papal office. He dressed more traditionally. He acted more traditional. He tried the hermeneutic of continuity. You know, let's try to interpret Vatican II and Novus Ordo in continuity with the past, with Vatican II, if you watch my podcast, you know I've given up on that project years ago. But at least he was trying to do that. And what's amazing is the St. Gallen Mafia, the modernists, the liberals, the sodomites, the heretics, they wouldn't even tolerate the hermeneutic continuity. They wanted to get that. We know there was a St. Gallen Mafia. They didn't like Ben the Sixteenth. So as soon as Pope Benedict's body is cold, get ready for the globalists, the media, the CNNs, the liberal European politicians, and I dare say your liberal Vatican infiltrators, including Bergoglio, to start pinning all the problems on the scapegoat Ben of the 16th. That's what I think's next. That's what I think's next. I think they're going to start releasing things perhaps that we didn't know about or emphasizing things that we did know about. And the whole idea here is if you want to do the hermeneutic of continuity and you want to emphasize things like books and saints and theology before 1960, before the council, and you want traditional Latin mass and you want Latin and you want Gregorian, you are part 
of the rigid problem that the whole problem of sexual morality and pedophilia and bank scandals is actually not the modernists, it's actually the traditionalists. And just look at Pope Benedict. That's where, that's ground zero of this rigid, traditional, mean, judgmental, hypocritical form of Catholicism that likes to dress up and have the Latin mass, but in reality, it's whitewashed tombs. What you really want to be is open and judgment-free and blow with the Holy Spirit. Be groovy. Be hip. Be tolerant. Do you agree with me? Leave a comment below. I'm going to open up and look at some of the um, comments here. Here's um, Rowena, Rowena, Andre. I totally understand what you're saying, Dr. Taylor. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, if you've been following all this, I think, I think you're agreeing with me. I don't see how, if you've been studying this, reading it, or especially if you agree with my viewpoints over the past five years, I think, um, I think this is definitely the tradition that they're going to go. Marcus says, to the modernist, the cause of sex abuse is clericalism, which is embodied by traditionalism. Exactly. Exactly. That's where they're going with it. This is their end game. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think I am. Uh, Russia will be the scourge of the Americans predicted long ago. I agree. See Fatima for details. And by the way, America is leading the charge in abortion, sodomy, transvestites, and all that. You think we can do all that perpetually and not receive judgment? <sighs> Leroy, Burger King religion, have it your way. Yeah, that's, that's basically what, what uh, these infiltrators since 1960s have been saying. Have it your way. Cafeteria Catholicism, Luby's. Pick and choose whatever you want. Moving through your comments here. Please leave a comment below. I'll be engaging with y'all. Here comes the women deacon panel. I agree. They want that so bad. They want women deacons so bad. They want it so bad. They want there to be women deacons so bad. They want women on the altar. They started this with lay Eucharistic ministers and lectors and cantors, and they're just going to keep going and going and going. You know what they really want? They want a woman pope. They won't say that out loud because it's too scandalous. They want women priests, women bishops, women cardinals, women in the dicasteries in the Vatican, and they want a Pope Joan. Marlene says, I'm so glad you asked this, Marlene. What is the solution? She's watching over at Facebook. The solution is, guess what, Marlene? I'm not a pope. You're not a pope. We're not cardinals. We're not bishops. We're not priests. We are just the little people. We're the lay people. But if you read church history, God chooses the little people. He raises up the lowly. He ra raises up the meek. And there are those moments where you have a Judith or a Ruth or an Abraham or a Noah or a Peter. God chooses the small, and he humbles the proud. The solution is, we can't run for office in the church. That doesn't work. Well, I guess some people run for office. Do I need to say more? We can't run for office in the church. So what do we do? You do what the saints have always said. I try to echo that on this podcast. What, are, what have the saints always said to do? Prayer Angelus every day. Pray your rosary every day. Go to confession every two to four weeks. Go to the traditional Latin Mass. Fast and pray on Wednesdays and Fridays. Be devoted especially to Our Ladies on Saturdays. Read the Bible. Read the entire Bible. Yesterday I just gave you the way to go through the whole Bible. Check out that video from yesterday on my podcast on YouTube. How to read the whole Bible in a year. Hundreds of people. I've helped hundred, hundreds of people read through the Bible in one year. You can do it too. See yesterday's video. Study the old catechisms. Be a saint. Stop sinning. 
practice penance. These are the solutions. Our solutions are supernatural, not natural. So we have to go to supernatural means, and that means becoming a saint. It's called sanctification in the Bible. Sanctification is the fication, the making of sanctus, of a saint. Sanctification, making of a saint, becoming holy. We must be holy. Where there's a lack of saints, there's a lack of the Holy Spirit, and there's more confusion. We must be morally holy to the best of our ability. Will we still continue to sin? Yes. Do we still go to confession and still say prayers and say, forgive us our trespasses? Yes, yes, yes. We must. But the solution will come in a way we don't understand that we cannot foretell. And it will happen because of saints. And we do know if we are entering into the end times, I'm not saying we are, and we go into the great tribulation and there are great martyrdoms, Many of us will be called, if that's the case, to become martyrs and to lay down our lives as witnesses to Jesus Christ. We have to pray and train for the graces to be able to sustain that. If not us, the next generation. So we have to train the next generation. We are warriors. Before Vatican II, confirmation, the sacrament of confirmation, was to create you as a warrior for Jesus Christ. You even got slapped on the face. It was called the Alapa by the bishop. You were made a warrior for Jesus Christ. If you don't see yourself as a warrior because you're confirmed, the sacrament of confirmation, we're not doing it right. We have to become militant soldiers, warriors for the kingdom of God. Christ is a king. He's also a general. We must file in and fight. We fight with the weapons. The word of God is the sword of the spirit. The rosary is the battling ram or the weapon, according to Padre Pio. We must put on the armor of God, St. Paul says, and we must take on the weapons of God and we must become saints. That's the only solution. Look at blessed Carl of Austria. He was a saint. He was holy. He was entirely converted to Jesus Christ. He had the sacred heart with him everywhere. Crucifixes everywhere. And he suffered. Did he win back the Austrian Empire, the Hungarian Kingdom? No. Did he die a witness for Jesus, save souls, sanctify his wife and his children? Yes, we have to do that. Blessed Carl, pray for us. All right, here's some questions that remain. Why did Benedict resign? Was it valid? If it was invalid because of the Munis Ministerium, which keeps coming back, was B-16 really the real Pope all the time, this whole time? If he, was, if he were, are the cardinals made by Francis legit or not legit? What about the red binders that Pope Benedict received in 2012? Some say it was one binder, some say it was two binders that contain all the dirt, all the evidence on the wicked cardinals and the Vatican officials. The transvestites, the bank scandals, the cocaine, or gay orgies. Where is all that documentation? Has it been destroyed or does it exist somewhere? Will it come out? What about the bank scandals? What about the Vatican Bank? Why is it constantly in the news? Why is it? A, why was it a problem under... Paul VI, why did John Paul I die? Was he murdered? I think he was murdered. Why was the Vatican Bank a scandal under John Paul II? Maybe you didn't hear about it, but it was. I cover it in my book, Infiltration. Why was the Vatican Bank a scandal under Benedict XVI? Why is the Vatican, Vatican Bank a scandal under Pope Francis? What is the deal with the Vatican Bank? And then also... Maybe it's safe now to talk about the election of Bergoglio in 2013. Was it canonical? Does, this, does Pope Benedict passing and going to his reward clear the air for us to have other conversations? And then for me, the one that I'll be thinking about today is, it's just a philosophical question. It's a hypothetical. What would Catholicism be like today if Benedict had been Pope 
and there had been no Francis, no Bergoglio, no resignation for these past nine or so years. Would it be better or would it be worse? I want to think it'd be better, but maybe it would be worse. Leave a comment below. I'm interested in this topic. These are things that I'm going to be talking about for the next several days as we pray about them, as we discuss them, and I want to engage you, so leave comments, leave topics that we can explore together, and I think 2023, which begins tomorrow, is going to be a roller coaster. Do you remember a couple years ago after McCarrick, I said there's going to be even more scandals and they're going to have to do with politics and with money, and I was right. Well, I think 2023 is going to have more scandals, but now they have a scapegoat. Anything bad that comes out about Vatican Bank, instead of pointing at Francis, they're going to be, oh, yeah, it was that Benedict guy who's dead. Any bad bishops, any pedophiles, any of that, well, Benedict XVI. In a way, this sets them up to be more powerful. I'm talking about the St. Gallen Mafia crew. Well, whatever you believe about Pope Benedict, whether he was still really the Pope, if he was the Pope Emeritus, if he went back to being a Cardinal, whatever you believe, I know that he would want us to pray for him. We should not be quick to canonize him. I am not quick to say, oh, he was playing 4D chess these past nine years. I think the sober, responsible, and loving thing to do is to pray for Benedict at least for the next 40 days. We need to include him in our rosaries, include him in our mass intentions, and pray for him in the repose of his soul. He could be in the fires of purgatory right now, suffering. That's a, that's a real possible outcome for all of us. He would want to be released, and we here, we little lay people, we have the means and the power to assist him through prayers, sacrifice, alms, rosary, and mass, and divine office. So we need to assist him. So we'll pray for him, and I'll close this in saying a prayer together. There's uh, 4,460 of us, so if we all join our prayers together, that is something. And so we will pray for Ben the 16th. Uh, we'll pray and our Father, a Hail Mary, and a glory be for Pope Benedict XVI. And since I'm on uh, my laptop, I don't have the Latin text to share with you, so I'll just pray them in English. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. May the souls of the faithful departed through the mercy of God rest in peace and may light perpetual shine upon them. Let us pray for the repose of the soul of Pope Benedict XVI. May he rest in peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Thanks for watching today. Um, I will be back maybe this evening, but definitely in the days to come to, to talk about these difficult topics. So if you don't want to miss those, please do hit the subscribe button. And next to it is a little bell. Hit the bell. You'll be notified in the days to come, even if you just want to be subscribed for the next week or so, so you don't miss anything. And um, yeah, I think we just got to buckle up, become holy, pray, and become the saints that are needed this time. On earth as it is in heaven, we have to bring that about. And we the only way we can do it is through Jesus. Right? It's not about political action. It's about Jesus Christ, Christocentric, Christocentric, Jesus in the center, Jesus in the center, all things for Christ the King. Thanks for watching, and remember, our Lord Jesus Christ said, You are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. 
So go out there and be salty 